This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Cast Divisions. Denmark Vesey. Altering RPG History. And Dion Fortune. Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's what a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone stops a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! We open with a low pan through the shag-carpeted basement. The glowering face of Peter Frampton sits at one end of the table, the jocks at the other end of the table, the nerds at the other end of the table. That's three ends of the table. That's okay. The jocks and the nerds are the same person because they're in the basement of the gaming hut. But in the world of the gaming hut, in the world that we create, there are often stricter social divisions even than those legendary ones between the jocks and the nerds of those long ago days when Peter Frampton ruled the world. Robin, what are we going to talk about in terms of social divisions even cast systems in game worlds. Well, I thought we'd look at the very issue of the fact that uh, all human cultures that we uh, know of uh, have some sort of status hierarchy, uh, even egalitarian uh, cultures, which tend to be very uh, small sort of hunter-forager societies still uh, recognize the uh, authority or status of uh, elders. And the uh, general rule appears to be that the uh, more complex a society uh, becomes, the more its classes tend to stratify and the sense to which everybody considers them all part of a whole, but may uh, relate to some uh, stigmatized group. And even uh, a uh, ethnically completely homogenous society will find uh, somebody, some group to stigmatize and, and view as the other. So uh, I think what we want to do is look at different ways that we can uh, build that 
into our uh, imaginary worlds in order to uh, both seem more realistic and also to uh, play with the idea and to create the sort of inevitable conflicts that arise from it. So, Ken, if you're, uh, let's start off imagining a uh, a fantasy world, not necessarily an F20 world, but a sort of a, a, a fantasy world of some kind, and you're uh, designing a city-state, how are you going to first initially start to tackle the question of what its class structure uh, might look like uh, before we then move on to the more important question, which is how do the uh, player characters interact with that system? Well, as per normal, what I do is I start with uh, Earth. So if I'm building a city-state, I will look at the city-state that I'm using as the model, and that might be uh, ancient Ur, or it might be uh, one of the cities of North India when they're getting Hinduism going, which is another wonderful uh, fantasy era with lots of magic and gods and whatnot. Um, it might have in a Greek city-state, of which, of course, there's reams and reams of information, uh, Rome under the Republic, um, any number of possible, and then all the way down into the, your individual feudal city-states under the Hansa. And depending on what kind of flavor I'm going for the city-state, I'll go with basically, I'll start at least with how that city was set up so that I have a model then that I can depart from if I want to do something artistic or if I want to say, well, okay, I know how Hamburg works under the Hansa. How would it work if there's actual a guild of wizards running around or if there's nine different churches, all of which have to count as good because they can all summon down lightning to kill you? So if we're going to uh, if we're going to zoom out from that question then a bit, if the objective is to have a fantasy society that the player characters can interact with the existence of the class structure and know that it's there and have that part of the theme of the storyline uh, as you go along, but is not so cripplingly locked down that the any confrontation with the class structure just crushes you and there's no way to interact with it. Of all these various uh, choices that you've mentioned, what would you settle on as sort of the one that offers that range of possibilities? I, I, you would either want to be going towards uh, the more medieval city-state because although they have a you know continent-wide class structure in a lot of ways, there's a lot of uh, medieval fluidity uh, as people move in and out of towns. Uh, or I would go as far back as I could to Ur or Babylon, where we assume that there was a pretty intense class structure, but we just don't actually have enough information to know how uh, restrictive it was, as opposed to, say, Rome, where we know exactly how restrictive it was. It was so restrictive that there was some ungodly number of civil wars every time someone tried to uh, change the class structure. So if you want to you know, start with Rome, you have to start with the assumption that the characters are either from a fairly narrow band of the class structure and all of their adventures happen covertly in the city. So as, as you say, not to get crushed or overtly out in the provinces where they can stab people pretty much with impunity. And uh, so if you want to have your urban adventures in which you can fluidly move in and around the class structure, you probably want to either make it medieval where that turns out to be pretty possible, at least if you're in that sort of broad middle section, um, or go so far back into antiquity that we aren't sure one way or the other exactly how, uh, you know, civic uh, order was maintained in Babylon, although we can probably guess that it involved people getting beaten with um, uh, stone clubs a lot. Now, if we're going to do what I, what I would tend to do, which is to take a couple of steps further back from history and try to generalize it a bit, I would uh, look for just sort of thematically, I think it's interesting to perhaps have a contrast between 
two different city-states with their different cultures and two different class systems that the characters might move between. And that then allows you to make the theme of class structure part of what you're doing so that you would have uh, one city which would have a more uh, rigid class structure, a caste system where you actually literally have names for all of the different classes as you have uh, in India and very specific rules for how they interact. And because you want players to have a sense of freedom, the freedom that they're not going to have, as you mentioned, say in Rome, unless they're uh, one super privileged sliver of the population, that their home base would be the uh, imaginary city where they uh, claim to have less of a class structure. We don't have a caste system here in Urvania, but of course what they're really saying there is we don't have the overt caste system that they have over there. We have our own inevitable social system, but we're just not going to admit it to ourselves because we have this example over here of this other culture who are even more uh, rigid. So we can feel uh, self-righteous about our system and claim that we don't have their system. And then covertly, uh, we do. Well, we don't even necessarily covertly have to have a caste system. I mean, there are actual differences in social rigidity between uh, urban environments, right? You you can have, you know, uh, Urvania can actually be more liberal in all ways uh, in terms of social mobility than faux India, but uh, Urvania can still have, you know, all manner of brutality and bad behavior and even a a fairly obvious class structure, but if it's not a caste system where you're literally born into it until you die and have very strict rules about marriage and interaction and touching, um, you know, Rome was uh, a fairly rigid Tokugawa-esque in many ways society, but its caste structure was not as overt as, say, uh, early medieval India was, and that's just a fact. And Athens was even more open than that, even though, of course, it had, you know, some immense number of slaves who didn't really count for urban politics at all. Although, again, uh, as with most classical slavery, they could uh, buy themselves out of it and uh, and and, uh, you know, then enter into a uh, defined band of, of social mobility upwards if they had. Uh, the the wherewithal to do so. Right. So if our choices are between a fluid system where uh, social structure is unacknowledged and a fluid structure is acknowledged, which one of those do you find more interesting as our contrast with our caste system? I think you still want to acknowledge a social structure because, again, like you say, that's what you're trying to sort of call into relief. And if you don't acknowledge it, then you're going to be left with people actually believing that Urvania is, you know, a classless meritocracy, which is not the point. The point is that there have to be uh, classes, you know, only gentry can carry swords. Uh, There are slaves uh, who are maybe goblins or kobolds or something. So it's not as weird, or maybe they're humans, so it is deliberately that weird. Um, and there are, you know, the, the people who are born into the priesthood or born into the monarchy. So you have a very clear level of social structure, but you have more interaction possible and the ability, like I say, to buy your way in and out of it at, that you didn't necessarily have, uh, in medieval India when things are getting going. Although again, I suspect that if we knew more about medieval India, we'd have a lot more stories about people who came up from, untouchable uh, cast at some in some fashion and uh, managed to by hook or by crook get their daughter into a good marriage and then suddenly they weren't so untouchable because they had to come around on you know naming day and things right and the more social upheaval there is if they're in times of uh, war or economic change that is when 
otherwise hidebound class structures start to break down and uh, it doesn't become a meritocracy, but uh, in sort of extreme cases where there is uh, somebody who's uh, really ambitious and has something that the power structure wants, whether it's their skill as a general or their uh, trading acumen or whatever it is that those people... Or their magic ability in our fantasy universe. And so uh, uh, another way of looking at this is that as... Uh, player characters, when you're as players, when you're headed to a, a new city that your GM is describing to you, uh, the first things you can ask are, well, what is the social structure like? How are poor, poor people treated on the street? Is there an obvious um, uh, outcast uh, group that is, uh, you know, a stig- you know, who is stigmatized here? Uh, who is celebrated here? And how do I plug myself into the structure? And uh, it's going to, it would be instructive, but probably not very entertaining to start off with the characters at the very lowest rung of things and having to be the people who uh, work their way up and through the structure, unless in the very first uh, session you could somehow indicate that this is, first of all, it's a fantasy world Horatio Alger story, basically, and you can tell the players ahead of time that this is about your rise from uh, the humblest of origins to possibly the top of the power structure so that, A, they know that's a possibility and they know that when there's a pushback against them that it's not just the GM putting the screws to them and making sure that they will always fail in order to recognize the way class structures work in history, but that it's something that they can um, move against. So what um, elements of a setting would you want to build in if that's the the framing, that the uh, characters go from uh, nothing to possibly uh, the heights of this new culture. Well, as you intimate, you need some sort of reason that they might rise because, again, if anyone could do it, the class structure isn't actually a class structure and you have built something that's a narrative contrivance, not a society. So uh, the reason that they might rise can be the the thing that gets them all together there in the the low uh, contemptible people tavern. Um, that they all have the secret to where the orb of salvation is, is kept and they have to work together because um, each one of them knows a piece of the secret. And so that's why they all have to rise. Uh, and, uh, the orb itself is sort of drawing them up mystically. And that's sort of what's giving them a little of the social grease that normal, uh, non-player character type people don't have. And why, again, the society is relatively stable, or you want to set up, you know, some sort of opportunity from outside that a that is visible to, I would say, at least a third of the player group. And it may not be the same opportunity. Like one player is like, well, the way to rise is obviously to become a really powerful magician and I'll just learn all the really good spells. And then they'll have to bring me into the magic guild because otherwise I'll be too dangerous to keep outside. And if they try hunting me, uh, they'll just set off a, a, a an underclass uh, revolt and they won't want that. And another person may say, no, our real good way to rise will be to let the orcs come and besiege the town and then they'll need our strong fighting arm uh, because I've got, you know, tactical gifts, uh, you know, for fighting and I'm going to raise us up that way. And so as they're moving up the ladder and maybe a third one is like, no, um, you know, you have an NPC uh, uh, prince fall in love with them and say, no, I want to marry them or at least take them up into the palace and be able to introduce them around to my relatives. So that, you know, draw of love, which again ha- has happened, you know, in every society where it's like, well, yeah, sure, they're all untouchable, but I want to touch that one. So I'm going to bring her up into into society. Um, and the, the classic way that narrative uh, does this and uh, does it with a single protagonist and cheats 
is that it turns out that in fact this person of apparently humble origins is secretly of royal blood and the well that's because you know the people who are listening to the story want to believe they're of royal blood <laughs> more than they want to believe in social change <laughs> right and also that uh you know in uh in tighter uh social structures it's less threatening to the uh, social order mm -hmm. if the person rises up uh, uh and but then it's all legitimated at the end with uh you know the the revealing of the birth certificate so that's something that you could have for uh, one character, or you could have the character, you know, the classic character who is on paper has a higher status than uh, he does in reality. So you could have, you know, the impoverished noble who's had his uh, land stolen from him. And, uh, you know, the king, he's out of favor with the king. And, uh, you know, in certain societies, like in the uh, Joseon dynasty in Korea, you could go from being a court official to a slave with a snap of the uh, king's finger. So uh, you could be someone who used to be on top, who has then toppled to the bottom. And that gives that character an interesting sort of uh, guide function in the storyline so that he can be the character who, through the GM, introduces all of the other, uh, you know, true chancers and risers to uh, the way the rules work so that you have someone who can... Uh, sponsor you at the ball and even though noise nose is right of joint because you've brought all these weirdos into the ball the rules of the society allow you to do that and you can sort of train everybody else and you know what the expected behavior is and that uh, also allows him to serve as a, a conduit between the truly humble characters and the supporting characters that you'll be dealing with as you uh, rise up to the top of the uh, social structure. Another way you can play it, and I want to get this in because there are so few games that actually deal with social structure and social class at all, that it'd be a shame not to mention, you know, the one of them that does. Uh, but uh, GURPS Goblins does the same sort of thing where you're the lowest of the low, and one of the sort of imputed goals is to rise, but of course... It being based on Georgian England, there's a million obstacles in your way, including a lot of other larger goblins. But, um, uh, in GURPS Goblins, the class structure is played not quite for laughs, but for sort of black comedy. And so as a result, the uh, obstacle becomes part of the social contract in a way of the game in the same way that, you know, getting your face chewed off by monsters does in Call of Cthulhu. So that if you're playing GURPS Goblins, you've said, yeah, Okay, GM, you can go ahead and, and apply social hosing to us because that's part of what the fun is of this, of this setting. And the, and if you can present that same sort of fun opportunity, I'm not saying, you know, make light of, uh, uh, of social division necessarily, but make the booted fist of oppression funny when it kicks you or enjoyable when it kicks you in the same way that making the shoggoth enjoyable when it eats you, even though it's also horrible. Um, is the sort of, uh, if you, if you can play a game of social horror or social adventure or even social tune in the way that, uh, GURPS Goblins does, that can give you another set of vocabularies, uh, to operate within. And I would think. even in, uh, you could have a, a non humorous irony in your campaign in that once the characters rise to the pinnacle, uh, then they see a new set of, uh, humble people down at the bottom, uh, trying to rise up who would displace them if they mm -hmm. rose. And so, uh, then you, you would get to the inverse of the first campaign and you probably wouldn't do, want to do that for the same length of things. You just want to ring that bell and note that, you know, things have changed so much mm -hmm. that now it's you who are the one who wants to squash the next uh, group of upstarts because uh, it's your throne that they're uh, gunning for. I think maybe at the beginning of the session, you have everyone raise their hands if they've read William Makepeace Thackeray. And if, you know, 
the majority of the players have, it's like, okay, we can play this game now. And if not, then it's like, well, all right, we're going to stick to stabbing orcs, I think, maybe. Right. Well, uh, the, one of the rules of this podcast is when given a choice between Thackeray and orc stabbing, we move on to the next segment. So we, we opened the doors of the History Hut in a uh, commemorative mood. Uh, we took a break, which was invisible to you, the listener, because we stacked up some episodes. And uh, we are uh, looking for a way to sort of recognize uh, one of the really sad events that happened while we were away. And we're good uh, when we look at uh, crimes and atrocities and uh, uh, horrible situations. We're better at doing it through the lens of history. So I thought the way that we would uh, note... Uh, the terrible uh, murders at the uh, AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, is to dig a little deeper into a historical footnote that you may have heard in coverage of that event, but because it wasn't the main point, uh, you didn't uh, hear much more about, and that was the fact that this uh, church uh, in the early 19th century was also uh, the center of another big story, and that was the story of uh, Denmark Vesey and his slave revolt. This happens in 1822, and I thought we'd uh, use the powers of our podcast to illuminate that story a bit. So, Ken, how would you first start telling the story of Denmark Vesey? Um, well, I mean, you start, obviously, by mentioning that uh, Denmark Vesey uh, began as a, uh, as, a, as a slave in uh, South Carolina, and managed to free himself um uh, by because he won the lottery he literally won the lottery and uh was able then to take that lottery money or about half the lottery money and buy his uh freedom and changed his name from uh, Telemach, which would be the uh, sort of French version of Telemachus uh, which is the uh, classical son of Odysseus he takes the name Denmark um, because, uh, the, uh, Denmark is the country that ruled St. Thomas, which is the island he was born. And I think he thought it, he probably thought it sounded kind of like Telemark, but, uh, Telemark, but wasn't, uh, his slave name. And so at that point, he then becomes an independent free carpenter and, uh, tries to sort of fit into the small, but, uh, one assumes, uh, you know, uh, larger than just him. Uh, free black uh, bourgeoisie uh, uh, craftsman class in Charleston, and one imagined that that was about as tough as it sounds. Right, because <laughs> the mere, mere existence uh, of that class is is a uh, threat emotionally, if nothing else, to the entire structure of slavery, which of course is still very much in place uh, in South Carolina in the 1820s. Right, and he's uh, even uh, he's his uh, wife. He's married to a woman who is still enslaved. And so when he has children by his wife, they will, under the South Carolina law, be the property of his wife's owner as opposed to his children, which is the sort of thing that, uh, you know, is the ongoing. And we, I mean, we talk about the uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, way that the social class, the social system keeps itself in power. That would be one of those ways and one of the more abhorrent ones, I would think. Chilling and horrific yes. and uh, easy to forget but, now. But this is the one where, even though in he is helping to found a, um, uh, a Presbyterian church that eventually becomes the AME church in Charleston, he is not as full of forgiveness as uh, one might be uh, under other circumstances and justifiably so, I think. And so he is uh, 
plan basically is to uh, launch a major uh, uh, revolt amongst all of the enslaved people in Charleston and uh, all the plantations around and that everyone who can get to the waterfront on Bastille Day, 1822, uh, they'll have stolen enough ships and killed enough uh, people who had who had those ships that they can sail to Haiti, which, of course, at that point is a free um, uh, country and is a uh, free uh, majority black, as in almost no white people are left in Haiti country. Right. After a big slave rebellion, that uh, is another <laughs> one of the things uh, that in the minds of uh, slaveholders of uh, various ideological stripes is one of the great symbols of uh, terror for them. Mm -hmm. um, and Which, uh, in fairness, is because all of the slaveholders on Haiti were were killed. And that is the sort of thing that will terrify you regardless of uh, what you're doing with the rest of your life. Right. And that <laughs> that is the uh, oppressor's dilemma, is yeah. uh, the fear of what will happen when you release your boot from your victim's throat. Mm -hmm. um, and also at the same time uh, that the tide is starting to turn against uh, slavery uh, elsewhere in America, and for, for example, they've been unable to uh, expand slavery uh, into the West, which is starting to, um, again, create the sense of insecurity that eventually a generation later is going to lead to the Civil War. Yeah, although we're still a little bit early for that. Um, we're We're now at the part where they're beginning to move slaves, not necessarily into the, the what we would think of as the West, but what they thought of as the West, which is Alabama and Mississippi and the Yazoo country. And it's that internal uh, westward expansion of slavery that's going on right now, or not right now, but in 1820s uh, in South Carolina. And there is, of course, even within the slave system, there is the break between the inland slave planters uh, or, or uh, slave-owning plantation holders and the guys in the lowlands. And the lowlands are thinking, well, we've probably, you know, uh, we're, we're probably okay. Everything's pretty good for us. But the people who are basically slash and burning uh, the, the almost jungle in, you know, Alabama to put down more cotton plantations, they have a real interest in expanding slavery, not just in geographically, but to people who were previously at, well out of it. And so... Uh, Denmark Vesey's status, as with the other free blacks in South Carolina, is still very, very chancy. It's not the sort of thing where you become a free black in, in, you know, even in New York in this time, it's still a little dodgy, but it, let's say you're a free black in Vermont or somewhere, you're probably not going to get turned into a slave ever, ever again. But in South Carolina, that's a real possibility. And so the, 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 the free, uh, um, uh, black community in, uh, Charleston, they're also living on a knife edge. And so they have other reasons to uh, want to see the system uh, get, you know, smashed over and above the sort of moral level of, yeah, we should probably smash this horrible slaveholding system. And so how far does the uh, rebellion get before it's uh, crushed? As far as we know, per, uh, you know, history, not very far at all. The, the mayor, uh, James Hamilton, sets up basically a, a citizen's militia. And they patrol the streets and start arresting people who are ringleaders. And then they put them to the question and they, you know, say who brought them into the slave conspiracy. And eventually it gets up to Denmark Vesey, who is the ringleader that everyone names. And so he is basically arrested and um, uh, they're tried before a special court. And uh, even then... Um, people are saying, this seems like a sort of illegal special court. And the mayor's like, if the mayor's doing it, it's not illegal. And so 
they have, you know, back and forth, uh, you know, disputes. Uh, they, they try the court. Um, they find Denmark Vesey guilty along with five other, uh, men and they hang them on July 2nd. None of them have confessed. All of them have, uh, you know, pled not guilty. And that basically ends the, you know, sort of immediate crisis, although the sort of the fallout, like there was in Charles, in, uh, Salem, continues sort of to move throughout the, um, uh, the, uh, the city. And there's a lot of, um, uh, not a lot. There's four white men who are also convicted of being part of the slave conspiracy, sort of being accessories, uh, to inciting insurrection. And those guys are fined and jailed as opposed to being hung, um, because they're white. And so the result of it is a lot of ill feeling on both sides because the, the really hardcore slave guys are like, why didn't you hang those people? They're worse than slaves. We at least understand why slaves would do it, but these guys are race traitors and you absolutely should hang them. And then other people are saying, well, if it was a real slave conspiracy, you would have hanged them. So what's going on here? You know, how come all these trials were secret? And so there's a lot of social back and forth, which has continued, of course, into the present day as historians try and decide whether or not there's any evidence of an actual Vezi plot versus a sort of, you know, uh, social, uh, uh, phobia that is sprung up possibly because Denmark Vezi was going around even perhaps just as an elder of his church saying this system is unjust and, you know, a God will bring vengeance down on them, possibly on Bastille day. And so that is sort of the, um, uh, the sort of the question that we, we leave it at now and historians, I think, go back and forth and argue, uh, depending on exactly which version of, um, of, of sort of their politics is, do they want to say that Denmark Vesey was an innocent man done wrong by the, by the white, uh, overclass, or do they want to say, no, you're now taking agency away from Denmark Vesey. Obviously he had a grand conspiracy that was crushed by the filthy South Carolinian Gestapo. And so we don't know what the truth is. And we probably never will, because again, all the proceedings were secret and mayor Hamilton was apparently not a Dewey lamb to, uh, sit around and publish evidence with people. Right. Because there's a political conflict between, uh, him and the governor, mm-hmm. uh, whose name is uh, Thomas Bennett, and they're two factions. They're both two slaveholding factions, of course. Yeah. But uh, the uh, mayor's faction are they're the hardliners, and they're arguing that if we uh, we need to be uh, afraid of the possibility of, of a revolt and the uh, trying to uh, treat your slaves well is just inviting anarchy. And the uh, governor is from a so-called moderate faction, and of course still in favor of slavery, but in favor of a version of it that allows them to feel uh, better about themselves, that somehow enslaving uh, people isn't improving for them. And so uh, the all of the conflicts that we have records for, uh, the people casting suspicion on the uh, mayor's agenda and, and casting it as uh, hysterical to one degree or another, and of course if you start running a kangaroo court, uh, you know, you aren't necessarily going to be too fussy about the degree of actual involvement somebody's going to have. If, you, if your purpose is to suppress uh, a revolt, uh, you may not necessarily be always, you may go from suppressing a real and dangerous revolt to just suppressing anyone who looks at you wrong. And so uh, that's sort of the, the crux of the historical uh, controversy is that, you know, there are two sides telling the story and the third side that might actually have the story, of course, is not represented in history because they were crushed. Yeah. And, uh, in many cases, 
um, you know, being literate was illegal. And so they would not be able to leave a lot of records that were necessarily going to survive. And then, of course, there was the whole, uh, you know, uh, ex- deliberate destruction of Southern black society by the slaveholders and the deliberate destruction of uh, Southern society by and large by General Sherman. So it'd be a, kind of a miracle, a small miracle, if anything, in the, in the way of primary evidence survived, even assuming that Vesey was daft enough to write down any primary evidence, which of course he wasn't. And so is there, is this a fundamentally unknowable question as to, uh, how large the conspiracy was and what, uh, or what chance the revolt, uh, had of succeeding? Was it the clear and present danger or was it, uh, uh, trumped up. Do you uh, have enough evidence that, in your view, that you lean one way or the other? Well, I mean, by and large, if you're looking at um, a guy who's, you know, perhaps this is me as a Chicagoan talking. If you have a mayor who has a private uh, police force arresting people in a private trial in which nobody gets to testify uh, directly, and all of the things are done in secret, you know, even if we assume that all six people hanged were part of a slave revolt. I think we have to assume that the danger of that slave revolt must have been exaggerated just because that's the direction that the mayor would have gone. Uh, so even if those six guys had all been, and I'm not saying they were, but if they'd all been in a plan to steal a ship and sail away, that does not mean that Denmark Vesey's revolt would have burned down all of Charleston or any of the rest of that nonsense. Now, that said, if someone had handed Denmark Vesey a red button and say, push this and all of Charleston burns down and all the ships take, you know, you and all of your friends and uh, acquaintances to Haiti, I think he would have pushed that button. Of course, he would have pushed that button. He was he was not happy with the way that uh, the society in Charleston worked and who would have been so. You know, I don't necessarily know that, that we have enough evidence one way or the other, but my instinct would be to go along with people who say that Mayor Hamilton was um, uh, taking advantage of uh, the the possible presence of a, of a revolt to create a system under which he would be able to consolidate power in the city. And then the fact that Governor Bennett is pushing back against him could either, again, be because there's genuine problems with mayor hamilton or because governor bennett is trying to thump the city which again as a chicagoan the the governor of of illinois traditionally exists to annoy the mayor of chicago and vice versa so i suspect it was much the same in uh antebellum south carolina right because even as framed by hamilton really it's less a revolt than an attempted escape Mm -hmm. and unless you were unfortunate enough to be on uh, one of the the ships where the plan of such as it was to the extent it existed, uh, was to steal that ship and get away. That's very different than something that uh, would really endanger that uh, institution. But again, uh, one of the natures of uh, holding the wheels of an oppressive system is that uh, you have to be uh, more and more paranoid in order to stay on top of it. And if you don't have actual enemies, it suits your purpose to make them. Yeah. Uh, so are there, uh, is this part of a, a broader trend? There's certainly more, uh, slave, uh, rebellions or attempted escapes than we sort of tend to remember in history. Basically, John Brown gets to be the stand in for all of the, uh, other incidents. And, and Nat Turner to some extent. Is there a broader thread, uh, to draw from this? I mean, I think that by and large, uh, whenever you read about slavery, you always should read about as many slave revolts as you can find. And if your slavery book doesn't mention slave revolts, then you probably don't have a really good slavery book and you should go look at a different one because 
it is a constant that an enslaved population will try to rebel. We even know classically uh, of helot rebellions against the Spartans. And certainly, you know, again, the Spartans, that was an admission against interest to ever say it happened at all. So uh, we, we know about uh, peasant rebellions in, you know, in Japan, for example, speaking of, you know, brutal caste systems. So I would say that by and large, even the ones we know about, I suspect, are the sort of uh, peaks of the iceberg. And you should always assume as you're reading about some uh, uh, some uh, slaveholding social structure that it's not all as pacific as a historian writing a hundred or a thousand years later makes it sound just so that they can get on to what they really care about, which was, you know, alfalfa yields or the war against the Ostrogoths or something. Um, right. If, if you're being desperately mistreated, uh, you are looking for a way out of that. And whether you find it or not, you're looking. Exactly. And the act of looking is, you know, that's a political act. And if it reaches the level of overt politics, then it uh, is something that, you know, sort of makes its mark in history. And even if it doesn't reach that level, it's something that should be you know, kept in mind by someone who reads about, you know, say, ancient Rome or about, um, you know, uh, 1760s America or whenever, uh, whatever idealized period you want to read about that also has a whole bunch of people being enslaved in it. Well, I hope we've uh, provided such uh, context as it is possible to provide. And uh, let's move on to uh, hopefully a somewhat more fun segment. Time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tom Pleasant asks Ken and Robin, what changes to role-playing history would you make with Ken's time machine? Which is an interesting stream-crossing attempt from uh, Mr. Pleasant. Yes, so we're crossing uh, the streams all over here. Well, I, I guess before we uh, start with this, we should remember that unlike reversing the Battle of Hastings or killing Hitler or um, uh, averting the Dark Ages... Changing role-playing history is real historical change that affects real people. Yes, it's really important. It's very important. <laughs> so, for example, if you look back and you say, well, all those times Chaosium uh, went bankrupt and exploded on the side of the road, if I prevent that from happening, what you might have accidentally prevented was Robin writing Hero Quest and me writing Trail of Cthulhu. So be very, very careful when you monkey around. Now, that said, Robin, how should we monkey around? That, that's, a, well, that's a very humble way of explaining that you just narrowly averted Chaosium's destruction about six times now. Uh, but uh, it's, it's very humble of you to take well, that stance. I'm, I'm, I'm quite a guy. There are things that cannot be told. Yes. So uh, what I would do, the number one thing that I would do, I would go, go back in time and whisper in uh, Gary's ear and suggest to him that the uh, acronym NPC uh, is defining something by that which it is not. Mm -hmm. And that has always driven me crazy that we have player characters and non-player characters when it's not a brain teaser to understand that these are GM characters or supporting characters. So I would uh, do my best to go back in time and make them uh, GMCs as they are in uh, 
uh, Gumshoe and in other games that I've designed, or even SPs, or SCs, I suppose it is, just anything other than NPC that has always driven me uh, absolutely uh, nuts. And you might think it's a uh, trivial surface thing. Well, if it is, uh, as I suggest, I'm not trying to uh, create a vast ripple across role-playing history, because as Ken suggested, who knows what uh, things could go cock-a-hoop if you do that. But I think that uh, having something other than non-player character would be a tremendous positive change for me, if for no one else. Okay. Well, if we're talking about positive changes for me and no one else... Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there'd be certain companies that wouldn't go out of business yes, before they I, paid I, us, I, think I suppose. It, I think it, um, uh, there's, there's any number of changes I could start making if I was allowed to do that. Although one of them might be to go back and whisper to Ken, hey, guess what? Travel writing pays better. And you get just as much traveling in, perhaps more. But that's a different, that's a different point. Um, travel writing is crass, just as our, our PG writing is starting to become a thing. So. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that would have been my, my great opportunity to, uh, wait till Kickstarter, then be a role playing game designer. Yeah. That actually might not have been a bad idea. Um, is to, uh, go back and start Kickstarter earlier during the previous trough of the industry, right after the D20 crash. Uh, you know, we could have had, uh, a lot of stuff. Ha There's no technical reason you couldn't have had Kickstarter back then. Um, Amazon had much the same market penetration in 2005 as it does now. Um, I think that that might have been an interesting possibility. Uh, just to say it. I think and then you would be fabulously wealthy. I would be. Um, well, I'm going to be fabulous. If I'm going around monkeying with the past for my own benefit. It is It is generally against the time incorporated rules to do anything that makes you fabulously wealthy. Yes. Sadly. You just have to take all that money and put it back in the time machine budget. It's because it makes them, it makes it very hard for them to motivate me with bonuses. Uh, exactly. So <laughs> uh, would this be the bonus I get from buying Google stock or the other bonus? <laughs> Give me that. That's what they say all the time. Um, that's why I do. Um, I put my thing into memories, not into things as a time traveler. Um, they can never take, uh, that beautiful evening on the Nile with Cleopatra away from me. Anyway, the other thing that I think might be interesting is to delay the creation of the trading card game just to see what happens during that first sort of, uh, nascent explosion that happened in the wake of White Wolf, that there was a bunch of games that came out start and we're starting to really climb up in the early nineties and then uh Magic the Gathering drops in ninety three and everyone with a brain realizes that's where you want to put all your money and it sort of chokes and out everyone including the retailers. Including, so well, it's that, very difficult to even yes. if you want to stick with role playing games, right. it's very difficult to get any sort of profile for them. And the distributors, uh even more so. And so the uh and so it might have been interesting to delay that. I'm not saying end it because of course uh, that's a whole another beautiful hobby for uh, uh, that people enjoy and has done a great deal of good um, uh, by and large. But and in the long run, I think fed people back into yeah, the thing we do. But I think in the short run, it would have been interesting to see what a lot of the people who are Robins and my exact contemporaries as designers might have done if they'd stayed in it, as opposed to seen the uh, spiraling crash out that was the late nineties and gotten out of it. And I think that there was probably some interesting game possibilities in that sort of open space that existed in the late nineties or would have existed had there not been a better place to put your money as a, as a game store and as, as a game distributor. Um, I'm not, I'm not as, as, as super sure about that one way or the other, but it, but I think that there had to be some possibility of, um, of creative growth there that, that got, uh, skipped over as, uh, people began to panic. Yeah, there was certainly a time there to, and that was basically, 
you know, I entered the uh, uh, field uh, just uh, prior to that. And there, uh, before Magic dropped, every year at Gen Con, it was a really big deal what the big new one or two role-playing games was going to be and which one would emerge victorious. And then after that, uh, you uh, really have to get back to, you know, now it's like, what's the huge new Kickstarter? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is sort of a lost uh, decade plus of... Uh, not RPG development because tons of amazing things happened in that space. Uh, the the counterfactual, I suppose, for that would be that if the conventional trad role playing industry had continued to rumble along, would you have people doing all the brilliant things in the indie game space, or would it, all of those people gone off and written Earth Dawn supplements? I think that's a, that's an interesting question, but I think that. Uh, not to be a Marxist. And again, the more I read, the more I think the only place Marxism actually explains history is in the arts, um, which I guess is only fair. But the, the, the sort of the means of production by 2002 are so favorable to the solo creator that something like the forge probably would have emerged with or without any specific designer. I mean, obviously Ron Edwards happened to be the guy that sort of uh, became that, uh, that movement's, uh, Mohammed, but I, I think it was, it was very much. And indie. that's why you can't draw a picture, Ron. Uh, it, it is because, um, uh, the people will come out and explain role-playing theory to you until you saw off your own head. Um, but I, I think it was very much indie role-playing game time. And if you look at the careers of people like Luke Crane and people like, uh, um, uh, uh, Vincent Baker, these guys are doing independent game design and thinking about game design before Ron sets up the forge. And one of them would have set up a, a, a user, user group or something that would have attracted a lot of that same energy be just because the ability of desktop publishing had, had become so available just even in those last four or five years, the, uh, the openness of the, of the net, just there was so many more people coming onto it. Um, uh, again, after about 2000, I, I think that the, the real, the, the real ferment of 2001, 2002, 2003 would have happened with or without any given set of designers. I think there would have been some group of them. And I kind of selfishly would have liked to have seen what Earth Dawn supplement Luke Crane would have written before he moved on to do Burning Wheel. I think that that would have been a pretty great Earth Dawn supplement, frankly. Oh, uh, well, there's a Kickstarter for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to kickstart the Crane. alternate history Luke Crane Earth Dawn supplement. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about making changes to the uh, game history time stream is that it involves somehow convincing uh, people who are at least as strong-willed and truculent as ourselves to do things differently uh, without uh, you know necessarily seeing being able to see the effects of what that would be. So there are all sorts of design innovations that I would like to have seen occurred earlier because uh, certain assumptions have become uh, hard-baked into uh, gamer taste that, you know, I think aren't necessarily always the best way of doing something. So, for example, you could envision uh, taking the all-in-one stat block approach that you find in 4th edition D&D and uh, also in uh, 13th Age by some weird coincidence <laughs> and trying to go back and uh, show early 90s or sorry early 2000s jonathan tweet what he and rob are going to do later mm -hmm. and say hey look at these strap blocks you come up with later why don't you come up with them now in in third edition yes uh, but <laughs> and then ken might write a d20 book <laughs> yeah i mean it's still not the way to bet but it could have happened <laughs> yes but uh, you know the general rule of time incorporated is you're not uh, allowed to uh, reveal that you're using a time machine 
And I don't know how um, absent that with uh, Jonathan's uh, hyper logic, we would uh, be able to uh, uh, prevail upon. Yeah, him. I, or, I have, I, you know, we talk about what's possible. I have not yet been able to convince Jonathan of anything by drinking. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> my hands might be tied there. Right. And just like my plan would be to convince Gary of something. You know, exactly. We know that, that historically, <laughs> there's one thing we know about gaming history. That's not how that, that's how not gaming how that history goes. Works. That's why we need the profits from uh, buying Google early uh, to just uh, buy our way in and make the change. Yeah. Because if, if I was just able to wave wands and stuff, uh, I would also... Um, no surprise from previous segments, I would try and get uh, first edition D&D to have a wieldier alignment system mm-hmm. where it's like pick good or evil or lawn chaos, preferably number one. It's the most intuitive, mm-hmm. but not both. Yeah. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I I think all, you know, a whole ton of role playing games and a whole and more importantly, a whole ton of people's first gaming experiences would be a lot stronger with that uh, change. But even if we admit the existence of a time machine that seems not a credible change somehow yeah i mean I, I i guess we should maybe close this segment out with my favorite alternate role-playing history thing which is that i go back and get uh fritz Leiber and harry fisher in the same room as fletcher pratt when they're talking back and forth uh inventing uh basically um uh simming by writing the adventures of foffer and the gray mouser to each other in their letters and bring them into Fletcher Pratt's apartment in New York, maybe right after he's finished modding Jutland. And so he's got some free time and it's like, Hey, Fletcher Pratt, how about you figure out a way that they can do this face to face? Um, maybe with some dice, like in your naval wargaming, and invent role playing in a, um, uh, it, rather than a bunch of, um, isolated, uh, tech nerds in Wisconsin there it's invented by, two of the great creative minds of 20th century fantasy fiction and Harry Fisher and, um, uh, becomes a thing that is done by, uh, you know, first genre literati and then possibly full on literati as the forties, as the fifties and sixties happen. And so you get a role playing revolution at the same time as you get all the other DIY art revolutions, of the sixties and seventies, uh, well before, uh, you have, uh, Gary and Dave, uh, bring it forth in 1974. Well, once again, that gets the issue of the, that this is a very important time stream that affects uh, you and I personally. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, or you and me personally, so that uh, we wouldn't want to, uh, you know, have role playing so advanced that when we come along, we can't break in. Uh, and also, we don't want to have uh, Fritz Leiber get so distracted writing supplements uh, and splat books for Newan that he forgets to write Our Lady of Darkness. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of things to think about. This is not just reversing the Battle of Curse. This is real history, as I say. Yeah, I think it's time to uh, stroke our chins a bit more about this and then move on to our final segment. It's time once again to wend our way up the creaky cobbed web stairs beneath the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, who glowers down at us as we whisk ourselves into the parlor of the consulting occultist, and we sit across from him in our creaking leather chair. He's in his creaking leather chair, and he's ready to tell us about another major figure of occult thought, and in this case, it's Dion Fortune, who uh, in a way is kind of the the anti-Crowley. Ken, uh, where would you start telling the story of Dion Fortune? 
Well, I mean, the funnest thing about Dion Fortune is that she uh, saved uh, Britain during the Battle of Britain by using mystical light power to stop the Nazis. And I think that once you've sort of got that, where um, uh, uh, she's like actually writing newsletters that say, hey, if you're a magician, here's how to focus your energy against the Nazi bombers. And she's sending out her newsletters and she's writing special issues of her magazine about how you as a witch or as a um, magic user uh, can stop the Nazis. I think that begins that that sort of uh, die on fortune in a nutshell. And if you begin Alistair Crowley with him raping his um, uh, uh, novitiate out there in the Algerian desert to summon the demon Charanzan and then admitting that he probably did it wrong. Um, not the raping, the summoning. Um, that, that's your Alistair Crowley in a nutshell. Dion Fortune in a nutshell is a nice lady writing newsletters to other nice ladies about how they can uh, stop Hitler by praying to King Arthur and uh, summoning magic angels. And I think that that is that that's that's her all over. She's a, a lovely person. Um, I, uh, she was born in, uh, 1890. So she's sort of the latter stage of, of this, uh, period. She's younger than Crowley, obviously, although because there is no justice in the world, she doesn't outlive him. Um, and her name was, uh, Violet Firth. Uh, she was born in Wales, which is where a lot of your proper, uh, British mystics wind up being born. Uh, Even John Dee was of Welsh descent. Um, and she, uh, took the name, uh, Dion Fortune when she joined, um, the uh, London Temple of the Alpha et Omega, I believe, which was a offshoot of the Golden Dawn run by uh, Moina Bergson Mathers, the wife of um, uh, McGregor Mathers, the crazy wannabe Scotsman that ran um, that uh, lodge at that time. And so what is her, uh, she's a, a, a white wizardess, as it were, a creature yeah. of light. What are her works? What is she uh, remembered for today? She is remembered mostly uh, for two things. She has um, some sort of novels uh, and short stories. She has an occult detective named Dr. Taverner. And so The Secrets of Dr. Taverner is a book that you can find, I think, probably pretty easily. You can certainly find it a lot in used bookstores when I was hunting these things down. And have you read these? Um, I've read some of them. I do not consider her prose style or her fiction to be the thing that we want to remember her for, but... You know, it's it's no worse than a lot of them. I just don't find it as fascinating as um, uh, I do. You know, again, sadly, uh, Crowley's occult detective, who isn't occult, he's just uh, Crowley doing the Sherlock Holmes bit. Um, Simon If, who is a, a hoot and a half to read. So Dr. Taverner mostly, you know, it's, it's sort of like reading really devout, uh, evangelical horror novels where, <laughs> um, someone is, and she's not an evangelical by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the same sort of earnest moral tone where, it doesn't oh, no, partake there, of the dark imagination. There, there's, there's bad, there's bad things out there. Well, sometimes the dark imagination is very real in, in these and to a lesser extent in, in The Unfortune. Um, I think she's even less dark than American evangelical horror writers, but, um, uh, but it's always solvable. You know that Dr. Taverner is going to help everyone with the white light and the energy and the chanting. And then it's, oh, please, I just have to take a nap now forever. Um, and, you know, Karnacki, who nine times out of ten is going to solve the problem, is uh, scarier than Dr. Taverner, the, the stories are. So, but she's remembered for that. And she's remembered for um, her magic books which are um, Psychic Self-Defense, which is how to defend yourself against bad magicians, um, and uh, The Mystical Kabbalah, which is her version of the Hermetic Kabbalah, uh, which I think is probably more remembered than it is read, although uh, I think Fortuneites would disagree with me. And then she has sort of a, 
you know, uh, a bunch of, of articles and things and a, a book called The Cosmic Doctrine, which is her sort of, here's how magic works by Dion Fortune, uh, type, uh, introductory. It's, it's her version of magic in theory and practice to continue our Crowleyan thing. Although again, it's not as much fun to read, sadly, because she's not as much fun a writer, although she's obviously a much nicer person. And so what is her cosmology, basically? Her cosmology is essentially the, um, uh, Golden Dawn cosmology by and large, but she ascribes deliberate goodness to the higher powers in a way that the Golden Dawn does not. And her argument is that the sort of the secret chiefs are intervening in mankind to improve us and to help us be good. And they have sent various, uh, you know, wise teachers and, and, and white, uh, workers, uh, like your King Arthur, like the Virgin Mary, uh, like angels to come down and help us. And those, uh, powers who are sort of like the atheers of the golden dawn can be summoned into communion with you in the same way that a golden dawn working brings you into communion with one of these atheers or elementals. And that by being in communion with these white chiefs, you can, uh, and it's white magic. It's, it's, I, you know, she's a racist. It's the sort of very genteel, doesn't even barely think about other people type racism that you have in, in 1940s Britain. She's not out there, you know, like Madame Blavatsky organizing everyone into root races and saying, Oh, sorry, you're descended from hateful Lemurians. Sucks to be you Jews. Um, no, she's not like that really at all. And, um, uh, so the various, uh, uh white lodges will send their, their, um, uh, their representatives down and you can commune with them and bring them into your, into your prayer life and into your mystic life. And she very much believed that her crazy occult King Arthur stuff would blend seamlessly with Christianity and you could be a good Christian and also a good uh, magic worker. And that was one of the sort of, I think, fundamentals of her belief system. And it's kind of the reason that she left the Golden Dawn Anyway, because she thought that the, um, uh, the Golden Dawn was a little too pagany for her. And so she wanted to make sure that, you know, Jesus was all right with you working white magic, which it turns out he was. So if you have a, uh, character in your Trail of Cthulhu campaign who is a disciple of, uh, Dion Fortune, what abilities or what, uh, what would she, what role would she be taking in a campaign? Well, in a, in a, in a, purest Trail of Cthulhu campaign, sadly, she is horribly misled. And at best, uh, her most powerful and puissant magics are a way to rotate you into communion with Nodens or one of the relatively non, non-immediately malevolent, uh, great old ones. And, um, by doing that, you therefore create a un, uh, congenial control surface for other mythos entities because you've already sort of, um, you know, rotated yourself into a different sphere of perception. And so it would be almost literally the, well, I've buried my head in the sand, so I'm safe, uh, magic. If it's in a more pulpy way, I think that you could have, for example, a, a, a Dion Fortunish, uh, magic might be to, uh, lower the level of, of sand, of, uh, of stability loss because the white uh, energy is, is giving you, um, you know, uh, inner strength, that kind of thing. I don't think that, you know, it's lots of, uh, you know, leaven bolts of, of white light, uh, that, that, that come out of your fingers and, and blast shoggoths. I don't think that that's really her. Although again, depending on how far you want to take the Arthur thing, you might have a possibility of being possessed by, uh, King Arthur. And so, for, you know, some number of combat rounds before you burn out and fall over, 
uh, you are King Arthur, and so you are able to fight these monsters more effectively, either magically or just you're, you know, you get a free refresh of, of weapons use or, or, or scuffling or whatever. Right. And by electing to play a disciple of the Unfortunate rather than the Unfortunate herself, you can, uh, you have room to make your character uh, fit in with the general aggressiveness needed from uh, Cthulhu investigators. Right. Um, so uh, you mentioned that she died before uh, Crowley. How, uh, how did that happen? Well, um, she dies in 1946, uh, and of, of leukemia. Um, and that is how that happened. It turns out, uh, and even white magic won't, uh, won't stop leukemia, or at least it didn't in 1946. Um, she, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, pr- spent most of her later occult career, you know, trying to get everyone to be nicer to each other and being surrounded to an extent by her, uh, fellow acolytes and people who also believed in niceness. Uh, she was in Glastonbury channeling King Arthur and, um, uh, and Guinevere and whatnot. And so she had, uh, her sort of, she's maybe sort of the God, the good godmother, the, 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 of the, of the new age around Glastonbury in that sort of way. Uh, I, I almost hesitate to, to tie the, the new age in with her because she's so genuinely, uh, pleasant. But I think a lot of the sort of, um, we're all just going to channel and be uh, beautiful women together type uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley novel part comes to some extent out of Dion Fortune. And so I guess we'd have to give her th- uh, that um, uh, that lineage. So are there portrayals of uh, her or uh, Dion Fortune like figures in pop culture that you want to point people to? Um, I'm not sure that Dion Fortune is sadly is famous enough to go into fiction. Um, Catherine Kurtz did a number of uh, novels about uh, good magicians helping people. And uh, I think she did a novel called Lammas Night about uh, the the witches fighting off uh, the Nazis at the Battle of Britain. And I'll bet there's a Dion Fortune figure in that one, although it's been a while since I read it. And I may, I mean, she may even turn up in it because Catherine Kurtz sort of, she doesn't quite follow the pure Flashman rule of history, but she's, she's, closer to it than a lot of people. And so they're, they're sort of walk on characters who are, who are famous. Although a lot of times it turns out it's just uh, members of the British Royal family who announce that they're witches uh, because that's Catherine Kurtz's bag. Um, but the, uh, but I suspect if you're looking for a, for a Dion fortune, you, you look in the, um, the Lammas night and those, sort of um, uh, British occult uh, uh, goodness novels. Well, I sense a, a white light coming toward us, and it's the light uh, not only of the end of this episode, but it's a light that signals that our next episode is going to be our 150th episode, therefore an anniversary episode, therefore a lightning round episode. So everybody uh, will uh, see you in a week, and we'll answer a whole lot of questions really quickly. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Elevate our status by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Stand alongside such illustrious sponsors as... Gary Shaper. Johan Alston. Daniel Noland. Rick Neal. And the surpassingly munificent James Chang. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or Visions of King Arthur by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.